Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Wildcard Conversations, my little podcast where I pull random cards with thought-provoking questions for my wonderful guests. I am your host, Katja Bavendam, and I am so grateful for the diverse group of friends, acquaintances, and strangers who come on here with open hearts and minds. What they all have in common is that they have wisdom to share, knowledge to drop, stories to tell, and I am so happy to hold space for them, listen to them, sing their praises, cry and laugh with them, and share a little bit of myself as we go along. On today's episode, I am joined by my good friend Danielle Dowler, and if you enjoy a dry sense of humor, you have come to the right place. Danielle shares how parts of her childhood led to her becoming a hyper-independent adult and how that extreme independence sometimes makes her life difficult and sometimes empowers her to live it to the fullest. Having been through more hard things than the average person in their mid-30s, Danielle has gained a deep understanding of the human condition and with it the ability to laugh about the absurdities of life especially those of the morbid kind. This is your official trigger warning that we talk about death quite a bit throughout this episode, so if that's something you don't currently want to hear about, I'll see you next time. To everyone else, I hope you can laugh with us and maybe learn a thing or two about what happens before, during, and after death. I certainly learned a lot, and I'm very grateful that Danielle was so generous with her sharing around this super important topic that affects literally everyone. Please stick around until the end of the episode for my key takeaways and my shameless plug to support this podcast. But for now, thank you so much for listening, and without further ado, please enjoy this fun, morbid, wonderful conversation with Danielle Dowler. Danielle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I always love that these podcasts are such a good excuse to get my friends on Zoom and catch up. So it's so good to see your face. It's so good to see you too, Katya. Um, I'm really glad that we've had an opportunity to catch up since you moved. So it's been too long and it's really nice to see your face, even in the Florida sunshine that's really far away from here. I know. It's been since my going away party which we didn't have enough time to connect because there were a ton of people there. So I'm glad we got to catch up on all the private stuff that doesn't belong on a podcast before we hit the record button. And now we can get into it. But to tell the listeners who we are to each other, we met, God, I don't know how many years ago through a book club. And the book club fell apart with COVID, but our friendship didn't. So here we are, and I'm glad the friendship survived. I'm super glad the friendship survived. I did want to share what was funny about the first time I met Katya, just for the listeners, is that I happened to be hosting that book club at my house. And I have this weird thing where I don't really recognize how tall people are ever. I think I'm significantly taller than I am. I'm not tall, like to be clear. But what was funny was that my roommate at the time came home and she saw Katya stand up and she later was like, how tall is that girl? And I was like, I don't know what it didn't register to me, but to her, it completely did. And I just thought it was a funny happenstance where I was like, yeah, she, I mean, she's tall, but like, is she that tall? Maybe that's why we connected. I said, (laughs) you could see past my height. Thank you so much for the first time. I didn't ask you if you played basketball. I mean, it's real. That was a real gift from you. (laughs) I also didn't know that that you walk through the world with this awareness or thought that you're significantly taller than you are in real life. How for everyone, how tall are you? Around five five. I'm not a tall person in any way, shape, or form, but like I have a fair few amount of people in my life who scan five seven, five nine, and I definitely think I'm as tall as them until I see myself in photos. So you're yeah. five five in your physical body, but a hot five nine in your spiritual mental yeah. body. Okay, we love that. Shall we jump right into the wild card? Absolutely. Okay, I want to try something with you today. So I have these cards that are sorted by category. Instead of giving you a category to choose from, I want to see if we just do it by color because they have different colors. So I have a gray, yellow, green, blue, and red. Green. Okay. Green happens to be the category exposed. Are you you ready to be exposed? (laughs) I'm so ready. 
Okay, here comes your question. What do you love about yourself that you worry others will struggle to accept? Ooh, what do I love about myself that others will struggle to accept? I would say that I run through the world with a level of hyper-independence that is difficult, especially when it comes to vulnerability within friendships, when it comes to vulnerability within relationships, when it comes to asking for help. And so I think there are moments where either friends or significant others can sense that I may want help or need help, but I'm not necessarily going to ask for it. And I think that that's difficult to understand and understanding the reasons why. Do you want to tell me what the reasons why are? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I was waiting for a follow-up question. So I grew up with a certain level of codependent parentage, definitely chronic people pleaser. My parents are divorced. I lived primarily with my mom. And I think the dynamic that her and I had was such that she would look to me as almost like a stand-in for a partner, even though I was her kid. And so I learned to caretake at a young age, which made that it makes it really hard for me to want to do that as an adult because I recognize it a lot more now. But I also like, because I was caretaking for her, that wasn't necessarily reciprocated. So I learned how to kind of fend for myself in a lot of emotional ways. Like there was always a roof over my head. There was always food on the table, what have you. Like, I'm not saying that that wasn't provided for it was, but from an emotionally caretaken perspective, that wasn't necessarily my reality. So I find that I have a difficult time asking for things in my relationships of my choosing because when I would ask for that as a child, it didn't necessarily happen. And in fact, was often flipped around and said, but you should be focusing on me instead. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I think that's probably a very common thing for when people had to take on caretaking very young that it then later on affects their relationships in adult life. What came up for me, I think it might've been some of Esther Perel's work or a podcast with her, but I think there was this couple and I related to this as a a natural caretaker and people pleaser. It's like the, the house is on fire and I'm holding the fire hose And I'm putting out the fire. And even if my partner would be like, do you need help? I'd be like, no, no, I got it. I got it covered. But all I want is just for someone to take the freaking fire hose from me and help me. But I'm not going to say, hey, I need help putting out this fire because I just want you to know that I need help and do it and step up. Yeah. And I think along with that, and I don't know if you feel this way yourself, but sometimes I hope and wish that somebody could kind of like just infer that I need the help and step in and do it without, again, to your point, asking for it. And you have to ask for it. Like that's, that's how good communication works. That's how, you know, healthy communication works. And I know that intellectually, but deep in my programming, it's still very difficult for me to break out of that and be like, why can't you just like notice that I need it? Because I won't ask for it because I'm not programmed to do it that way. Has this been proven that this thing around this trauma around caretaking, has it been proven that it makes friendships and relationships difficult or is it more something you're worried about? I think it's both. Sometimes I'll have a friend who will notice and will step in and be like, hey, you know, like obviously you need some type of assistance in whatever you're going through, for instance. So a couple of years ago, my mom died and, you know, a lot of my friends we're kind of trepidatious as to how to deal with that because in the US, we're not great at dealing with any type of grief, death, what have you. That is not our strong suit. We shy away from that. We run pretty much anything to do with death. We're not about for myself. That's I've dealt with it so often that it's, um, it's a little bit different. And so I have a certain level of expectation of what I want, but again, it's hard to advocate for what you want when you're in the middle of the grieving or at least the initial stages of grieving. And so I had some friends who, because I was so withdrawn, they felt like, oh, she doesn't want to be bothered. And it was actually more that I needed somebody to be like, I understand that you can't think beyond this particular moment. So like, here, let me help 
plan out what you're doing. And here's the social thing, like, because I know you're an extrovert, like here's the friend things you need to be around. And I had one friend, for instance, who came over and she was like, I'm going to cook dinner for you. Happened to be a difficult day at work. I was running late. She's like, it doesn't matter. I'm just, I'm in your kitchen. I'm cooking dinner, whatever. We sit down. I was like, tell me about you. And she's like, absolutely not. This is, this is about you. This is what we're doing tonight. Everything else doesn't matter. And it just felt so good to be taken care of in that particular way. And it was so unexpected because it hadn't really happened in that way yet. But it was just like one of those moments where I was like, oh, you see that it, I just need this for this moment. And that's really wonderful. I don't know if that answered your question or if I went on a tangent, but tangents are allowed and welcomed on this podcast. So you have had positive experiences around people stepping up and taking care of you and breaking through your hyper independence, as you called it. What I'm curious about is how does this hyper independence show up for you in a positive way in your life? I think I'm less afraid to pursue things by myself that other people would otherwise wait for partnership for or for a friend to participate with them. For the listeners here, I happen to be single. Yay. Like, I actually love it. There's a lot of freedom and being able to pick up and go whenever you want without having to check in with somebody and make sure that it's okay to do the things you want to act upon. And because I was responsible for a lot of caretaking with my parents when I was younger and just family stuff in general, it almost feels like I have that ability to do it now that I didn't otherwise have. Um, so it's almost like a sense of freedom to be like, yeah, if I want to go on a trip for 15 days by myself, I can. And I love that I can and that there's a level of independence and that I don't know. I take a lot of pride in um, that everything that's happening in my life, I'm providing for myself and that there isn't necessarily like a safety net to catch me. It's like, it's just me and we're just doing this. And so the hyper independence comes in when it's like, I know that I can rely on myself. And I really love that feeling. The word empowered keeps coming up for me when you talk about this, having gone through this and having had to take care of people you are now empowered to take care of yourself really well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also prioritizing myself in a way that I didn't feel that I could before and really putting myself first and figuring out, okay, what is it that I want? How do I want to live my life? How do I want to pursue endless possibilities? And what are those? What do they look like? And how do I put that plan into action? And it's, I mean, like, of course, we're humans, we need support from other people, but it just like knowing that I'm the sole person who's going to catch me, like there's something really nice about it. It's like a very deep self-love that I haven't necessarily experienced for a lot of my life. I love framing it in that way because I, having been sort of alone in this world, alone-ish, have definitely struggled with moments of loneliness. And I don't think I lean into the empowerment aspect of it all enough because, you know, I am proud that I can take care of myself alone in this world. So thank you for, for shining that positive light on it. That's nice. Yeah. And I think the other, historically, we haven't been able to do this, right? Like as women identifying people, we're not historically set up for this type of success or this type of independence in any way, shape or form, even the society we live in isn't necessarily supporting that pursuit either. There's a lot of societal programming that encourages partnership or having people support you in one way or another, especially as women identifying people. But, and maybe this does come from my mom, who again was a single parent. There's something really empowering about being like, yeah, I did it. I did it anyway, despite all these obstacles, despite all these barriers, whatever. I'm still here. I'm still standing. And in fact, I'm thriving. There's something to be said for that. Definitely. Another thing that piqued my interest when you were talking earlier was when you mentioned that I've done so much caretaking that now I don't necessarily want to do it for other adults. Tell me more about that. Because I mean, I know you, you've hosted me at your house. And so I know you're a, a caring person. I guess what would the ideal relationship for you Let's just go with relationship and it can be a close, close friendship or a romantic relationship. But 
this topic of caretaking and both giving and receiving it, what would the ideal situation look like and what would make you want to take care of this person and in what ways? You know, I think there's a lot. Immediately, I go to my relationships with my friends and I do a lot of self-reflection on my friendships in general. And they kind of run the gamut of how I interact with them. You know how there's some people who have like groups of friends and they consistently hang out with those groups of friends. I tend to be more of like a one-off friendship person. Like there's definitely groups that I've engaged with, but I'm much better one-on-one. And it's always interesting to see how that relationship forms and like what specifically about it works. And so I think my ideal relationship one is And I I think I do have this across all my friendships is seeing each other for who you are and meeting you where you are and, you know, recognizing the things that are important to either person. I think one of the things I value, especially in friendships, relationships, what have you, is being able to like laugh at the absurdity of all the bullshit because there's so much of it. Just being able to laugh at the absurdity and laugh at yourself and, you know, show up where when you aren't necessarily asked to, but you can tell that there's a reason to even the smallest bit of flailing. I had a friend this week message me and was like, it's been a really shit day. Work has been really tough. And I'm like, okay, do you want to talk about it? I have time. I can make time for you. Let's talk about it. And I know that you're going through it, especially if you're telling me that you're going through it. And I think I relate to people who have dealt with more difficult life things than what you would consider like easier life paths. So for me, I connect more with people who just struggled with one thing or another, but it all depends on like what that is. Yeah. You mentioned earlier before we started recording that you have a hard time relating to people who've never experienced any sort of trauma, right? Who have just coasted through life without ever having to face a significant obstacle and work through it. Yeah. I find that interesting. But I was just smiling when you were bringing up the laughing at the absurdity of things, because I feel like that's definitely one way that we connect when we just laugh and drop F-bombs about death and dying and, and things being horrible, because there just comes a point where, okay, you've, you know, held space for each other to be sad and cry. And then you just kind of got to be like, what the fuck is really going on here? Yes. Yes. I mean, and at the end of the day, Everybody goes through it. It's just a matter of when, right? So for me, I've gone through it much earlier in my life historically or gone through a lot of like more difficult life things earlier on than a lot of people will. And that's perfectly okay. But it's also like sometimes it's hard to relate to, you know, the blank stares when I say something and you get a reaction of like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this information. I'm like, it's okay. Give it like 10 years or like 20 or fuck, it could be tomorrow. (laughs) Just give it a little bit of time. You'll one day you'll relate back to it and be like, oh shit, that was like, yeah, all right. Yeah. You're like, don't worry. Something terrible is going to happen in your life. The only constant we have in this life is that nothing is permanent. Yes. Yeah. So the constant state of change, there will be ups, there will be downs. It's inevitable. Just a matter of what kind of ups and downs you're going to have. Right. Amen to that. Okay. So hyper-independence, What else do you Mm -hmm. love about yourself that other people may not recognize as a gift right away? I mean, I happen to love my dry sense of humor. I don't know if everyone loves that right off the bat. I've definitely had coworkers, friends, oh, friends definitely, who were like, yeah, your level of sarcasm is interesting. And I've subsequently diminished aspects of it over time. In my work environment, I've been told I'm deadpan and sometimes it's... (laughs) They understand me, but it took a little bit of time to be like, oh, okay, she's kidding. Got it. Or just calling out the bullshit very frankly. Often say the thing you're not supposed to say in a room. I personally love that. Your sarcasm is very much accepted around here and and appreciated. Thank you. I appreciate it. Again, it goes back to that absurdity thing. It's like if you can't point out the imperfectness of this world, then like, what are we doing? Also, has it really been a couple of years since your mom passed away? Yeah, we just hit two years this past week. It was two years already. Wow. Oh, right. Isn't it insane? Pandemic really steals time. Really... To be clear, she did not die due to COVID, in case anybody was curious. But but yeah, pandemic steals a lot of time. 
talk about being independent and almost single-handedly having to wrap up her estate and all of that stuff. I mean, if that's not an exercise in independence, then I don't know what is. I mean, I've talked with my therapist at length about how in some ways I feel like I skipped steps of adulthood. I may not be in a relationship, but I definitely know how to wrap up a person's life, which is a weird thing to know. Because again, my parents were divorced. My mom didn't have another partner. I don't have any living siblings. So that particular responsibility was mine. And I will say for anyone listening, if you haven't had those conversations with your parents or people who you might be in charge of or power of attorney or whatever, have those conversations because it's a lot harder to do it scrambling at the end. And this is like me saying it, even though I did have those conversations, there was still a bit of scrambling to do to make sure all of that came together. And it was hard. I do not recommend having to call burial or cremation services the morning your parent or whomever will die. If you know that it's a terminal illness or something like that, there's nothing you can do for things you don't know about, right? But if you know ahead of time, it's really hard to have that conversation when you're in the middle of pouring out tears and the person on the other line is like, okay, I understand you're upset, but like, I also need the information of where I'm going. So let's make this a space where we can openly talk about death. What are some of those or some of the most important conversations that you think should be had around death that are important to prepare caretakers for the moment of wrapping up a life, as you said? I had this conversation with a former coworker a year ago, two years ago, who's talking about how um, his mom, I think, may be on the precipice of dementia or what have you. And how he didn't want his kids to have to see her like that. And I had a very strong reaction to the opposite where I said, no, I think it's really important for your kids to see her in that particular way because the death part is inevitable. So like having those conversations with your loved ones about like, hey, here's what's going to happen. But like, I'm going to be here for you and we're all going to be here for you and not making it so scary. I think one of the things I was gifted with was we have a really close family friend who like has helped with hospice multiple times over and she shepherded us shepherded us through the process us meaning myself and my cousin who graciously came down in the middle of covid and was like all right we're doing this but she was like here's what's going to happen here's how the body deteriorates here's like how hospice works here's what you are going to expect from the team and what they're not going to do and here's what you us are in charge of and like it's going to be okay and so having kind of that plan i found out recently that there's a thing called end of life doulas And I thought that that was just such a beautiful idea because, you know, you talk about somebody bringing in life, but you don't really have a person who's situated to like help you and help you peacefully exit one. And so she, in more ways than one, was kind of like an end of life doula, but had a lot more medical training. So that was super helpful. And just really setting up conversations with your parents about or with whomever about how how do you want to set up trust? How do you want to set up estates? Where is everything? Powers of attorney. If there's multiples of people who will be in charge of things, how do you divvy up responsibilities that way nobody's fighting over it? How do you make sure that that person is the most comfortable that they could possibly be? What kind of religious or spiritual things do you need to get together? And who are those leaders that you need to engage with? And like maybe have those numbers ahead of time so you don't have to scramble or some people buy burial plots or cremation situations like way in advance instead of Googling last minute, which honestly, the cremation options, that's that's like a whole other level because they give you like a menu of all the different things you can do with the person after somebody's died. And you're just like, wait, what? I can only imagine because, you know, when my dog died, the I was given two options, right? Which probably going to be very different but you know option option one was hey we can just burn the body and we'll dispose of the ashes and option two is you give the final gift and you get the ashes and then you can upgrade to like the super nice urn or, or the standard urn or what have you so i can only imagine that for a human being and the person you love that they are really busting out the catalog of options So I had a family relative who died last year. One of my other family relatives was helping 
situate that self. And she had sent me a screenshot of the options at the funeral home. And she was like, what is this Bay Area shit? Because we're from the San Francisco Bay Area. And some of them were like coral reef shot into space deep sea fishing i don't so many different options of what you could potentially do with a bot we were like okay tree we went with classy urn to be clear isn't that so fascinating that the american culture is so horrible about or, or so afraid of talking about death but then the consumerism continues on we're still good at that here are 20 colorful options and it was the same like when so one of the things i'd known my entire life which is kind of a weird thing to know is that my mom always wanted to be cremated like i knew this at the age of four it's a weird thing to know about your parent but she used to sing this song about worms and that was enough but in short we get to the mortuary and they're like okay so do you want the basic option which is and i have this like glamorized view of like okay if you get cremated you're wrapped in like white linen and they just like send your body in basically mummy that is not what happens at all <laughs> i was rudely awakened when they were like so this is what the standard option would be and it's basically putting the body within a cardboard box and my initial reaction was i don't believe in ghosts i don't but she's gonna come back and haunt me if i ever do this like are you fucking kidding me this is not an option and so you sit there and you're like it never occurs to you that it never occurred to me that you have to put the a person in something, you, they're not just wrapping them up. And so for my mom's cremated body, I had to purchase a casket, which seems counterintuitive, but then there's only certain caskets you can buy because it has to be broken down by fire. And so the irony of the whole situation is that I got her a Jewish casket because we're Jewish and she very much wanted to be cremated, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And so they're looking at me going like, okay, do you want the star of David on? And I was like, throw it on. Let's go. We're really fucking with the whole death scenario. I was like, but that's what she wants. And yep, this is what's happening. Can you educate me about that Jewish people, not cremation, not being a thing? Yeah, Jewish burials are very much a thing. You're supposed to be buried in like super orthodox tradition. And this is conjecture. So if I'm wrong, I'm sorry to whoever's listening to this who might know better than myself. But my understanding is, is that in super orthodox traditions, like the bottom of the casket falls out such that your body lays on the ground in the dirt. And then your family and friends are supposed to shovel dirt on top of you, like as a collective to be like, hey, us as a community are saying goodbye. But the idea is that your body is supposed to lay as close to the ground as possible. So that way it's like the ashes to ashes, dust to dust thing, like, mm -hmm. except that it's more body decomposition. In more like conservative reform Judaism, it's most often a pine wood coffin and they're untreated. If it's like super reform Judaism, they're going to have like a full treated coffin and that body's not going anywhere. It's never decomposing. It's going to be preserved for all time. Some people are really into that. Jewish tradition, technically, you're not supposed to be embalmed. You're supposed to do a funeral within like 48 hours of death. And you're definitely supposed to let the body decompose. Like that is very much a part of it. You're supposed to, you're not supposed to be an organ donor. You're supposed to retain all of your organs for some reason, which to me seems a little selfish because that could be used for somebody else. Yeah, it's like really interesting. So there's um, a, a lot of rules and, and traditions around Oh yeah. Burial. If you have tattoos in a Orthodox tradition, you get those cut out of your body. I was going to say, I, I heard something about tattoos once. You're not supposed to have tattoos of any kind. I've always wondered though about ear piercings and I don't really know the answer to that. I don't know. It's a very interesting anyway, but like cremation is not on the list of the Jewish menu of things you can do with your body. So it's a really interesting experience. It was also very interesting to explain it to my mom's neighborhood Chabad rabbi back in California. She was living in Arizona at the time, but that she wanted to be cremated. And he's like, but do you have to? And I was like, that's what she wanted. What am I supposed to do? Did you, in your Jewish upbringing and, and beliefs, did you care that you had to go through sort of that discomfort of going against Jewish traditions? Or were you just like, well, this is what mom wants and I'm just doing it? It's different for me because so actually I had a sister who passed away when I was younger. My mom under no circumstances was ever going to have my sister buried. So we always had my sister who was cremated in the house from elementary school on. So like, regardless of the fact that we were a Jewish family, what have you, there's always been somebody cremated in the house. 
which is weird. And if the question is, do I have my mom currently in my house? I certainly do because I haven't figured out exactly what I'm doing yet. But weirdly, it doesn't feel weird. Is she still next to the expensive alcohol? 100%. I think that's a good place. As she should be. Yeah. I mean, where where else do you put someone? I wouldn't know. Where where do you put someone? I mean, you haven't really had to think about it, right? But like, I was thinking about it the other day, how my family kind of has, we all have one of us, or we all kind of carry a person at this point. And I was like, that's a little odd, but kind of worked out the ashes distribution system is working in our favor. I don't, (laughs) it's so morbid and so ridiculous, but I was like, but it's true. There's four of us who have someone. And... I mean, at least, you know, you put the the Star of David and you got the proper coffin. So, but you've lowered the likelihood of her coming to haunt you. Oh, yeah, yeah. That that coffin was definitely, it had a plushy pillow element to it. There was, I mean, and we also did the weird, not a weird, they asked if we wanted to see her before. They send them down a conveyor belt, by the way, in case... <laughs> <laughs> in case anybody was wondering what this podcast would be about yeah uh they send bodies down conveyor belts and i didn't look at that part because again still too traumatic but they, we did open the casket and i didn't have her embalmed so like but they i mean kept her frozen enough where it wasn't super decay when i saw her so that way we could see that they had dressed her in the proper clothing that we had given them and everything but it's the correct person in there that not- also that Somebody else accidentally got put into your nice casket when they should be in a cardboard box. Can you imagine? I mean, but it's not like they give you the remains right after. Yeah. Like you have to wait a few days. So like, who knows? I could have whomever at this point. We don't know. I mean, I don't know if I got the right dog, but with the dog, they also give you the final paw print and some of their fur. (laughs) So... What part of her fur did they give you? (laughs) I I don't know, but they must have shaved off some fur and put it in this little see-through bag. bag. And so that was part of the final gift bag was the urn and then this paw print with a really heartbreaking rainbow bridge poem and some fur. And I'm like, cool. They do not give you like a full-on gift package when you leave with a human, by the way. No. It's like... It's like, I still have to figure out an urn situation because I hate all of them. In case anybody is curious, they suck. All of them suck. Like I've not found a single urn where I'm like, yeah, that's, that's it. That's mm. so they like put them, or at least this particular mortuary, put the remains in a plastic bag with inside a like structured box, which is inside a velvet bag. So it's definitely like a Russian doll situation. But what I didn't know is that and this makes more sense now why the coffin you choose has to be of a certain kind. When they go to burn bodies, literally all you're getting back is the bone remains. There is no remains of the coffin that completely extinguishes, which didn't occur to me at all. Right. So it's not burned wood mixed in with your mother. It's just it's just her remains. Yeah. Which like, of course that makes sense. But like when you go to look for urns to put somebody in, they ask you for their body weight. And I was like, but the coffin was so much, weighed so much more. Like it took me a minute to realize that it really is just what her bones weighed. No, that makes sense. I'm curious because you mentioned your sister's remains being a constant in your, in your mom's house. Uh, Now that Mm -hmm. your mom's house is no longer a home. What happened to your sister's remains? So in an effort to prevent TSA from thinking that I had murdered people, I asked my dad if he would take my sister's remains because I thought it might be too suspicious to have multiple sets of people on that flight going home. (laughs) Uh... Even if I had a letter from the mortuary, it seemed like Plus, there was like a bunch of valuables that I had taken from my mom's home initially that I was like, yeah, these should just come with me immediately. And so I was like, this combination of things is going to make it look like I murdered people, had them cremated, and then I robbed someone. And (laughs) I didn't 
want that because TSA apparently checks remains to make sure that they aren't drugs. And so they like literally swab the shit out of that box to make sure that you're not smuggling whatever and that it's actually cremains. So yeah, my dad has my sister. That's my long winded answer. That is so funny. I'm just picturing you with loads of expensive jewelry and dead people in your carry on. And I... Yeah, that wasn't completely, you painted it. That was, yeah, the carry-on was a little ridiculous. Somebody audibly gasped when it went through the x-ray, not because of the remains, but because of what was in the carry-on. And I was just like, I don't even know what to say at this point. That's just what's happening. I promise I didn't murder. You're like, so what happened was... But again, wouldn't that be a question if you came with like multiple people? How does that, I don't even know what scenario that would be, but I'm assuming it's had to have happened, but I don't know who writes that letter to TSA and is like, so when was the last time you had one person carrying multiple cremains? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking of a scenario where a couple dies in a car accident, right? Or like multiple people at once, which unfortunately happens. So I'm sure it has happened before, but I also understand why... You were like, I cannot handle two dead people in my carry-on at once. And jewelry or whatever, valuables that make people gasp. That's understandable. And having it so like in order for my dad to take my sister, we had to take her out of her urn because that wouldn't go through TSA. It was too solid brass. So she's also in a temporary urn because I kind of hated that urn. Did your mom pick that urn? Yeah, I think it was an impulse buy. (laughs) I find that so funny. It goes back to that like consumerism. That impulse buying is a thing when it comes to urns. I think it is though, because you're not, I'm sorry, if you ever have to go and you look at them, you're like, these are not great. But the one that she was in was... I had had to lift it on multiple occasions and I was like, is this really how heavy a body was? And then they handed me the box after they took her out because the mortuary was nice enough to transfer her into what they call travel urn. And so I got it back and I was like, no, it really was the urn this entire time that was that heavy. It was this solid brass gold thing that had this raised line with like a circular bump on it. It was very 90s. That's all. (laughs) I mean, in the 90s, it looked very 90s. And my mom had, I kept the lid, the lid I have, but the base of the urn, I was like, I can't live with this and nor should anyone else have to, but the lid had her name on it and her birth and death date. So like, I kept that because that is sentimental, but somebody at some goodwill will find it and think it might be the ugliest face of all time, or they might infer that it was an urn and they may use it themselves. I don't know. But it could have held a much bigger person than my sister who was a child when she died. So <laughs> how old were you again when your sister passed away? I was eight and she was six. So it was my younger sister. And so what was that like? I'm just fascinated with this whole urn business now. Did you find comfort in your eight-year-old brain? Because now I think we're very much like, okay, there's obviously not a person in there. It's their human remains. But at, in, right, right. As in your eight-year-old brain, did you get comfort out of having your sister in the house in this urn? Or did it stress you out or were you indifferent? I think it was indifferent. To be honest, I don't remember where my mom put her in the first two. So we were in one house and then we moved a couple years later to another house and then finally moved to another house. And I know where she was in the last house we were in, in California, but I have literally no idea where my mom kept her in the other two. So it must have, oh no, she might've kept her bedside. So maybe that's why I didn't notice because it was her baby. It was her grieving process. So it's entirely possible that she was bedside until we moved into the last house where she was in the living room, but like kind of hidden behind a few things. So it wasn't this omnipresence of brass, gold colored urnness. <laughs> no, I mean, and like once in a while, I'd like tell my friend, they'd be like, so wait, is your sister buried? What's the deal? I was like, oh no, she's over there. And they'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, And I'd be like, I'm so used to it. It just, it isn't weird anymore. But I don't know if I found it as like a source of comfort because like, again, she wasn't like comfort person. She was my peer. Well, I guess comfort in the sense of being able to go to someone's grave 
comfort in that sense of be of being able to connect, I guess, to something, to an object. I think I was too young to have that kind of connection, to be fair. What was interesting is that we had a family friend who was roughly my age. She used to carry a picture of my sister around with her all the time. It was framed. She would take it on sleepovers. She felt a huge loss and would take that with her. I did not. I mean, like I felt a huge loss in the loss of my sister, but I wasn't as connected to like individual things necessarily. Oh, I mean, there's so much there, right? Losing a sister when you're when you're a child yourself, that's a whole a whole other oh. conversation. In one way that's obviously super big trauma and tragedy, and I think in another way kids are so much more resilient because they don't have all the societal narrative around it. Yeah, right. And and they're not as anxious about grieving and death yet. It's just things happen. Do you remember how you experienced the process of your sis? Because it was a process, right? It wasn't an accident. She oh. was she was sick. Yeah, she was sick. So for context, my sister had a brain tumor, specifically a diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma brainstem tumor. And if you ever look that up, the research is still not there. It's super rare. Isn't genetic, happens to a very small percentage of kids for the most part. And the majority of them do not survive past a year after diagnosis. So we got that diagnosis and she lived for 11 months after. And as far as processing, I think afterwards, after she had passed, I think I was just like in a state of numbness. I think that that's the best way to describe what it was. What was unfortunate on timing was that I was at a very small private school and that private school ended at third grade. So the following year, they needed to figure out where I was going to school. And at the time, my parents wanted me to attend private schools. And so, you know, a month, two months after my sister had died, they started testing me into private schools, but I wasn't performing on the tests, as you can imagine, because that had happened. So they'd have to explain to administration, like, no, she's, She's there, but like she's not there. And I ended up going to public school anyway. So that was kind of, but like, I think that that reflects most of what my grieving was. Cause I think I was just going through the motions and I do remember going to school and I remember having conversations with my teachers at one point saying like, at some point you have to start doing work again. And I was like, but do I, do I have to, who's going to make me, I can be here because for me, school was my safe place. So like I, I needed to be at school. It felt safe for me to be at school, but I wasn't engaging with people like people. I remember being asked questions that I found infuriating. And I was like, why are you asking me that? Don't talk to me. It was very much like a closed off, but I wasn't like crying. So there wasn't any sense of release necessarily. It was just like, I think bottled up frustration and anger that mm -hmm. manifested itself later. Like eventually I cried about it. I mean, you can't hold that on for forever. I think it was just like angry and confused. And I was like, I don't need to do anything. I get a pass, right? Like this is, this was big. And we dealt with this for a year and now we're here and I can just be here, right? Like I can just sit. And so it was a really weird experience to have to go in for these tests and not, <laughs> I was like, oh no, these are not going well. Yeah. You should just not have to take tests for as long as you don't want to take tests. Right. I mean, it's, it's, but you know, even bereavement in this, you think about bereavement time at work, it's what three days. If it's like a close relative for some people, like it's insane. And you're like expecting people to bounce back. And if that's not how number one, that's not how grief works because it's not linear. It's the most unpredictable process anybody could ever imagine. Oh yeah. It's a total clusterfuck that comes out of nowhere and you don't get a warning and you just kind of got to roll with it. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, being a kid, I think it's harder in some ways because you don't know how to express yourself. And one of the things that I particularly struggled with, and this goes back to the caretaking that we started with at the beginning, is that I didn't feel like I had a lot of opportunity to share emotions because my mom was a very emotional person and was not shy about sharing that. And watching her emotions made me feel uncomfortable. But I also didn't feel like I could share mine because I didn't think that there was, and this is like 
reflection due to a lot of therapy. I didn't think that there was a safe space for me to express emotion. Eight-year-old me probably wasn't thinking that. Eight-year-old me was just like, I'm just going to be quiet because that's what we're doing now. Right. Because your mom's grief was so big that it was taking up. Oh, my God. I mean, the- and like my dad's too, like, which is you know, understandable. I, I was with my mom, like, so yeah, her grief was so monumental that it didn't feel like there was necessarily space for mine. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, I was just thinking too, you've really had all the, I mean, you've really seen life deteriorate, right? It wasn't, you, you went through hospice with your mother after you know, a long period of illness. And then you had to watch your little baby sister go through what sounds like a horrific brain tumor. So a lot of your experience with death has been this slow process of watching people you love fade away in front of your eyes. So that's, I just wanted to acknowledge that that sounds really hard. Yeah, it is. But that's not to say that the alternative where somebody is there and gone the next day isn't just as hard. And I've experienced that too. It all sucks, right? It all sucks. Yeah. No, but I appreciate the acknowledgement because it they feel very different. They really yeah. do. Yeah, I'm sure. I've never, I think maybe that's why it stands out to me so much is I, I've never gone through watching a person I'm close with deteriorate and then pass away. So I have not been with a person. It's a really interesting experience watching somebody take their last breath that will forever be a really hard thing to witness, but it's a beautiful thing in the sense that you were with somebody through their last moments. Yeah, because it's such a, and it sort of goes back to that beauty that you found in the term, you know, end of life doula. It's just as sacred a moment as birth is. In a way, it's it's just we in our society have just decided that birth is a happy occasion and death is a sad occasion. And but they're both equally sacred and miraculous and divine and beyond us. So I'm glad that you could find the beauty in the in the horror of it all. I mean, I stand by the idea that if you have a loved one that's going through it and you have the time blush with them to spend it with them, even though it's going like at the end of the day, their brain turns off their ability to feel at some point. So like it's really for you and being able to witness somebody crossing over or however you want to phrase that transition is a really powerful thing. It's a really hard thing. But I think it reminds you of your own mortality. Yes. And you mentioned earlier your awareness around the only thing that we're guaranteed is change. And like the only two things that we're guaranteed in life that every person has in common is is being born and dying and everything in between. Like we spend so much time thinking about things that may or may not happen, jobs, relationships, marriages. But then we spend surprisingly little time thinking about the one thing that is guaranteed to happen. You just don't know when, though. Yeah, you don't know when. I don't know. I guess it just puts things into perspective a lot of the time. And I often, when it comes to stressors or what have you, I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm not dying today. That really is one of those pivotal moments. And when you've experienced it, I guess everything else feels less urgent. Well... I don't know how to segue out of this. (laughs) I don't know if you can. I mean, uh, we went down a rabbit hole, which I don't know if you were necessarily anticipating that one, but. uh... I didn't know what I was anticipating because our conversations tend to meander a lot anyway, whenever we catch up. So I was open to anything, but I think it was a beautiful conversation and a necessary one. And I'm going to make a super hard pivot here and go into my final question. Ooh, okay. Let's go. And this is a question I ask all of my guests. So, Danielle, what is your greatest gift to the world? Well, that's a hard question. Damn. This proves that I need to listen to more of your podcast. But I would say my greatest gift to the world is a deep understanding of the human condition and hopefully being able to share that with others. Tell me more. How <laughs> how does that gift show up in interaction with others? 
one of the things that I've found amongst friends, especially amongst coworkers, is that they say, you know, you're kind of like our in-house therapist. Whenever I have a problem, you always have the right response for it. And you're willing to hold the space for it and understand that nothing is black and white. Everything falls into shades of gray. And so I think that through empathy and willingness to listen and understand that that is the gift I'm bringing to this world is that I'm hopefully either providing a mirror for those who need it or or offering advice if solicited that's helpful or just holding space for somebody who may not otherwise have it in order to, you know, just keep going, just keep swimming, so to speak. I think that's a beautiful gift. And your understanding of the human condition and all of its complexity, wherever it may have come from, but based on what you just shared with everyone, I have kind of an idea of why you understand the human condition well. I think it's beautiful that you use that understanding to then hold space for all of the complex human beings that you encounter in this world. So thank you for sharing that gift. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, hey, it's me again, just giving you my six key takeaways from today's conversation. Number one, check on your independent friends. Go show up even when, or especially when they don't ask for help, especially when they tell you they don't need help. They want your help. They need your help. Trust me on that one. Number two, don't put joy and experiencing life on hold just because you don't have anyone to share the joy with. Do it alone and do it anyway. Number three, if you are close to people who are approaching the end of their lives and you will be involved in wrapping up those lives, have those conversations around funerals, wills, etc. while you can, even though they're super difficult, but it's even more difficult to figure it out after the fact. Number four, And this might be the most important one. If you are planning to take human remains on a plane with you, be prepared to prove that you are not smuggling drugs. Number five, bereavement time in this country is absolute bullshit. Grief is not linear and it most certainly takes more than three days to deal with the loss of a loved one. And number six, the end of a life is just as sacred of a moment as the beginning of a life. And I really like the idea of an end-of-life doula who helps with that sacred transition. On that note, that is all I got for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five-star ratings, hit those subscribe and follow buttons, share the episode with your friends, and if you're feeling crazy, leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Either way, thanks again for listening. And don't be a dick today.